Why skiing of all sports? Because it's exhilarating. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the feel of being a jackass with five-foot boards on your feet, flying down the mountain at 30 miles an hour, it's like riding a roller coaster. I mean, it's the, the difference is completely different than, than scuba diving or sailing. These are genteel things. You know, skiing is not genteel. It's extremely active <laughs> and occurs in marvelously beautiful places. It took Ben Finley a few lessons before he fell in love with skiing at the age of 24 in 1963. But something stood out to him on the slopes. He didn't see other people that looked like him. Eventually, Ben joined a ski club, but still he dreamed of seeing hundreds, even thousands of other African-Americans gliding down the hills and experiencing the exhilarating joy of skiing alongside him. Little did he know that 10 years later, he and his friend Art Clay would found the largest gathering of African-American skiers in the country, an accomplishment that would lead them to becoming the first African-Americans ever inducted into the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame this March of 2020. I'm Shelby Stanger, and this is Wild Ideas Worth Living. Ben Finley is a rock star. I mean, this man recently turned 81, and he's still skiing, even though these days he's mostly avoiding black diamond runs. And he still has a passion for getting more African-Americans engaged in winter sports, a cause championed by the organization he co-founded, the National Brotherhood of Skiers. For someone who initially got roped into skiing by an old girlfriend, his segue to the sport has been quite the adventure. So Ben, how did you start skiing? I mean, I recall reading it was because of a woman. Most adventures in my life, with the exception of the Boy Scouts, started because of a woman, yes. <laughs> and your wife's right here. I love it. I found her in the British Virgin Islands on a sailing trip. Wow. I met my dude surfing, so I always See? appreciate a good love story that's met over adventure. There you go. So tell me about skiing and how you first got into it. All right. Um, Shelby, everything in life is tied to history. In 1963, I was dating a lady, and we went up to Yosemite National Park and spent the weekend in Yosemite, chasing the raccoons away from the food, etc. And on Sunday, we're leaving the park, and she says, gee, why don't we stop by the ski area? Well, I'm from New York City. I've never been to a ski area in my life. All right, let's stop by the ski area. So here we are sitting at Badger Pass in the warm California sun, watching people kill themselves coming down the mountain. <laughs> and she looks at me, she says, I want to learn how to ski. And the first thing that went through my mind at that point was dollar bills and broken legs in that sequence. But, you know, I'm 20-some years old, trying to date this lady. What could I say? I said, gee, I got to figure out something real quick. And at that time, I was running a scuba diving club for North American called the Sea Sabers. 
And I said to her, tell you what, I said, I'm looking for a dive partner. If you take uh, diving lessons and pass your ocean checkout, I said, I'll bring you skiing. <laughs> and I thought that would be the end of it. Six weeks later, I was back in Yosemite National Park taking ski lessons. I absolutely hated the first four lessons. Now, again, you got to remember the time. In the 60s, the skis came all the way up to your wrist. Oh, they were so tall. They were extremely long skis. And in most cases, they were made out of wood. And I hated it. I said, why am I here? This just isn't worth it. And then on the fifth lesson, I could finally do a hockey stop. I said, yes, all right. This has got some places to go. So that year, we made a couple of more trips up there with some friends, and skiing got better. And then in 64, I went back to grad school at New York. And there was a guy by the name of Dick Martin who was running three buses a week out of Harlem with African-Americans on board. And Dick had this club that he called Four Seasons. Dick and I happened to have gone to grade school together. So I went on bus trips all during my graduate school. And um, basically, Dick and his buddies taught me how to ski on the ice of the East. So anyway, came back to L.A., went to work again. And I lived in Los Angeles, worked in Anaheim. And so we had a 30-mile commute every day. And the guy I was riding with happened to have been born and raised in Colorado. And one day he, I said to him, you know, I'd like to go skiing again. He says, yeah, so would I. He says, but it's so expensive. I said, yeah. I said, I know we can get group rates in Yosemite. So at that particular time, we were playing volleyball at a community center. And so we went into that volleyball group one night and said, hey, any of you guys want to go skiing? All we were looking for was 12 people. And instead of getting 12, we ended up with 36. And instead of taking our own cars, we ended up chartering a bus. And all of a sudden, Ben and Flavius were in the ski club business. And my guess is that was a good party time as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, skiing is a social sport. <laughs> Most people don't recognize that. So what was skiing like back then? I mean, you told me the gear was just atrocious. It was big, long, a little daunting. Yeah, I mean, the skis were long. The boots were made out of leather. There were two layers of boots, an inner boot and an outer boot. Uh, your foot was, was held onto the ski by something called a ski binding, still called a ski binding, but it was a cable binding that sort of grabbed a groove in the back of the boot. And basically it was a torture machine, which had a great capability of breaking your leg. Mm. On the other hand, the advantage was lift tickets were $6 at June Mountain. Wow, $6 at Jude Mountain. Mm -hmm. We would go up and we would have a bus full of people. And we stayed at a place called Fern Creek Lodge, which had two big dormitory-style rooms. And the girls would be in one room 
guys would be in another room. That's where Four Seasons started. And it was probably really fun. Oh, yeah. Definitely. All right. So there's a stereotype that skiing's traditionally been a white guy's sport. And I know you guys have helped change that. But what was it like back then? Were there any African-Americans skiing? Were you guys one of a few? The answer to that question is we were definitely a strange sight on the mountain. (laughs) And people would look at you. Well, let me give you a story here. Skiing Heavenly Valley one weekend. And we're having lunch. And these folks come over to us and they say, Wow, we saw you guys skiing out there. Where are you appearing tonight? They thought you were entertainers. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we told them, no, we're not appearing anywhere. We're part of the Black Panther ski team. <laughs> what did they say? Uh, uh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, in all honesty, with only one exception that I can think about, Four Seasons has never run into any overt racism on the mountain. None. So, you know, to my way of thinking, people basically would ask you silly questions, mm. but that's only because, gee, I never saw black people on the mountain before. You know, it wasn't a mean question. It was just an interesting <laughs> question. <laughs> so. Well, I appreciate, I appreciate that answer. It would have been funny if you guys milked it. We're like, yeah, we're the entertainers tonight. Let them buy you drinks. No, I- no, 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 no. <laughs> They didn't go that far. As soon as you said the word Black Panther, they backed away. Again, everything is tied to history. So Ben started taking his friends and the community to the mountain, and he encouraged others to try the sport out. Meanwhile, across the country in Chicago, future National Brotherhood of Skiers co-founder Art Clay was learning to ski and getting hooked as well. How did you learn to ski, and when did you learn to ski? Well, I started skiing in about 68, 67 or 68, and got hooked. (laughs) How old were you then? 35. And you got hooked at 35 learning to ski? Because it's not an easy sport to learn. (laughs) Yes, you know, and I know that now. I'll be 83 next month, and... You know, I know it's not easy, but, you know, I'm still trying to get folks involved at any point that I can. So when you got hooked, tell me about what skiing did for you. Take me to that moment where you just were like, I'm addicted to this and I got to keep doing it. Well, it it wasn't quite like that. You know, uh, actually, actually, it was during the time when I was out of the service and out of school. They had nothing to do, and, you know, like most of the activities around Chicago in the winter, they had to do with going to the bar and having a drink, or carrying your little whiskey case with you and going wherever you were going at the time. I found that it was it was cheaper to ski on a weekend than it was to just stay around the city for the weekend. Back then, you know, it was only about $75 to go skiing for the weekend for one day. And, uh, you know, we would go up to the Playboy Club here and we'll, you know, just places that were close to Chicago. Wait, 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 back up. What's the Playboy Club? The Playboy Club is up at Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And 
it had a ski area. I mean, it was small. Well, you wouldn't call it a ski area. You just call it a hill. But the hills in the Midwest were learning to ski were pretty challenging. And, uh, you know, as as we progressed, we started going out west and uh, meeting more and more. And, you know, like at one time, if you went skiing and you saw another African-American on the slopes, you would speak and have conversations. By the time the day was over, you were good friends. It went on like that for a number of years. And, you know, now... Going to a summit is like going to a big family reunion. There are people there who went to the first summit. You know, we aren't skiing as much anymore, and it's a little more difficult getting the younger folks involved in what we were doing, but they're still coming out. That's fantastic. Why weren't there that many African-American skiers back then, and do you think there are more today? Oh, there are more today than ever. And there will be more, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fun sport. Now, it's easier to learn now than it was back then. And uh, folks who never had the experience of using a 210-inch ski or, or cable bindings or leather boots, you know, it's a, it's a lot different. The ski industry is a lot different today than it was then. And it's a lot harder getting kids out of the neighborhood to go skiing. Costs too much. The cost today is prohibitive. You know, when lift tickets were like $15, that was high back in the day. And to see lift tickets today starting at around $75, and then you got to get there and transportation, you know, it's it's difficult. And we're going to find a way. We're going to find a way to get the kid, uh, continue getting kids from the community out on the slopes. Leading ski clubs on day trips is pretty different from growing a national organization with thousands of people gathered for an annual summit. So how did one ski club outing turn into a 45-plus-year-old organization? In 1971... I had a friend of mine who was living in Chicago by the name of Joe Dorsey. And Joe called me up one night and said, Hey, Ben, there's a black ski club here in Chicago. I said, Nah, really? I mean, because the only ones that I knew about was the one here and the one in New York City. So he gave me the name of one of the leaders of that, who is Art Clay. And I called Art, and we had this long conversation. And we stayed in touch for about three or four months. And then on one of our conversations, I said, you know, Art, I said, maybe we ought to get our ski clubs together. He said, yeah, that's a great idea. So I sat down, and I wrote a proposal. And I sent it to Art and every other black ski club that we knew of. The response that we got back said, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this, of course. So all of a sudden, Ben and Art are in the trip business, leading a group into Aspen. And then we started getting calls from individuals. 
and individual people would say, hey, I hear you guys are going to give this event. I said, I want to come. And both of us said, yep, you can come, but you got to have a ski club. You can't come as an individual. So that was the catalyst that led to the formation of another seven ski clubs. What cities were these ski clubs in? Seattle, Washington, Oakland, California, Washington, D.C. Gee, that's what I can remember. So you get these ski clubs. So we get these ski clubs. Seven more now. So there's seven plus Chicago plus your ski club. Okay, the plan here, again, history, 73, the end of the Black Power Movement. None of us felt safe letting Aspen know that this group of black folks were coming to town. And so each club just went out and made individual reservations over the phone for whatever number of people. At the same hotel or different places? No, we scattered Scattered. all over the place. Then I start getting calls from Schlitz Beer. And Schlitz says, hey, we want to come out and sponsor your event. Sponsor? What does a sponsor do? I'm, I'm, I'm an engineer. So then who else called? United Airlines called. And I finally figured out what a sponsor was. That's somebody that wants to pay for something. Great. So United paid for our souvenir journal. And Schlitz underwrote the races. So you see, this is a learning experience. None of this is planned. It just is coming together. And about two weeks before the event, somebody said, you know, we ought to really let Aspen know. So we sent them a press release. And uh, apparently, as I found out seven, eight years later, the press release caused Aspen to go into the anxiety mode. And they ended up having the Colorado National Guard put on alert for the week. Wow. We didn't know that. So it had no impact on the event. But when you look back upon it, it's funny as hell now. (laughs) So funny. What was Aspen like then? I mean, now it's it was a, a ski mecca, ski mecca of the, of the United States. It was the place. It was the place, definitely. That's right. For those of you who don't know, who weren't born in the 70s, in the 70s, Aspen was the spot. It was the spot. And yeah. well, we ended up with 350 people. 350 people. That's a lot of people for the first summit. It was very interesting from the standpoint that you had people from the East, the Midwest, and the South, and the West coming together who had no idea who the other groups were, and they melded like a deck of cards. Mm. It didn't matter what your occupation was, you were a skier, we were there to have fun. And obviously great social interaction occurs. The National Brotherhood of Skiers isn't solely about getting more African Americans on the slopes, though. At their second gathering in 1974 in Park City, Utah, they came up with the name for the organization, and they also came up with a mission to get black athletes on the U.S. Olympic ski team. That mission, though, has been harder than they anticipated. 
In 74, the group came together in Park City Thanksgiving weekend, and they decided to form a national organization. They went around with 15 or 20 different names, finally settled on the National Brotherhood of Skiers. And they had to have a mission, at least as far as Ben was concerned, he needed a mission for this organization. And it had to be something different than, uh, let's get together and party every two years. And so they finally settled on to find, fund, and select black athletes who would go out and win Olympic medals to support the U.S. ski team, because you all needed a real lot of help at that time. <laughs> okay. So that's been the mission of the organization. How's that, how's that mission gone so far for you guys? It's struggling. It's struggling only because of what it takes to make the U.S. ski team. Talk to me about that a little bit. I'm a surfer. I don't know too much about skiing, snowboarding. I just know it's a ton of money, a ton of work. And that sport is, like I said, it's expensive. Well, let's start. Let, let me give you the positives. I think at this point we've had four or five athletes, most of three of which have been disabled, who have started at the Paralympics. So you've had... The first was Bonnie St. John. Another one, was, I think, was Ralph Green. And I can't remember the third. How about Errol Kerr? Errol no. Kerr Errol was... Errol Kerr was, not, was on Jamaica. Yeah, he skied for Jamaica. He, he was an NBS kid who we gave scholarship money to. But obviously, Jamaica needed a skier or wanted a skier. Errol says, here I am. And he skied for Jamaica. That's awesome. Seba Johnson, I believe, skied for the Bahamas. Um, she was another one. And uh, that's what I remember so far. So you've had a couple of Paralympians. Then you also had these oh. two siblings, Andre and Suki Horton. Yes, they were the two that came closest. They made whatever the ski team is right underneath the U.S. ski team. Both of them were there. And the whole thing of making a U.S. ski team is dependent upon your reducing FIS points. In order to reduce FIS points, you have to compete. In order to compete, you have to travel. Well, in our case, we're dealing with high school kids who did not live at ski areas. So we ended up giving scholarships to places like Burke Mountain Academy, which were high schools in the New England area, to go to high school and sort of, you know, ski half the day and learn half the day. The problem that every youngster has, if you want to make the U.S. ski team, is basically you got to do it full-time. Okay, it's a full-time occupation. Not unlike ice skating or uh, gymnastics or basketball. And that requires, in some cases, that you delay your college education to do that. And in the African-American community, if you've got enough money to allow your youngster to participate in this expensive sport, delaying college education is a hard sell. 
So it's a challenge. And by the way, by the way uh, most of us do not live in ski areas. So now it's a weekend thing as opposed to five or six days a week. So it is a disadvantage, but it's still a challenge. It's still a good mission. When we come back, Ben talks about what a typical summit is like, and he shares some big news for him and his co-founder. Surfing is my number one favorite activity. And even though I'm surrounded by water, staying hydrated is key to staying out there. That's why I love the Trail Series water bottle from Hydro Flask. It's the same look and feel you know and love from Hydro Flask, but it's 25% lighter. And lighter doesn't mean your ice will melt or your coffee will get lukewarm. The double wall vacuum insulation protects the temperature for hours. Add in the lightweight, leak-proof cap and you found yourself the dream water bottle. You can find Hydro Flask at REI, and you can find out more about Hydro Flask and their Trail Series water bottle at hydroflask.com forward slash wild ideas. That's H-Y-D-R-O-F-L-A-S-K dot com slash wild ideas. Stay hydrated and stay happy. Everything I've read or watched about these summits makes them look like they're so much fun. But I had to hear from the man himself. What actually goes down at one of these summits? Tell me really quickly what a typical gathering is like for one of your your summits. You ski, you party, then you fundraise and give back to people who want to get to the Olympics or the Paralympics. Summit is like a gathering of family and their kids. Summit nowadays, for the registrants who who are still participating, you know, most of them are in their 50s. And then you have a contingent that we refer to as the renegades, who are the younger folks who do not want to pay the registration fee for the convention, but still want to be there for the party. And that makes up probably another 25% of the contingent. So you got these two African-American groups competing for space, party space on the mountain. Uh, For the older folks, it's like, gee, let's get together for the next year's reunion. You know, we haven't seen each other in a year or so. So, it's a great big opportunity to see your friends. For the now millennials, it's a hunting party. <laughs> you know, basically. I wow. love how you just said that. <laughs> okay. It's a hunting party. And uh, it's wonderful. The hunt goes on and uh, they have fun. I've, I've learned that we can't fight them, so you might as well figure a way to join them. So... It's two different groups of people, but the mountain absolutely loves it because of the dollars we bring to town and the atmosphere that comes along with us. I imagine you guys are pretty fun to hang out with. Oh, yeah. How many people are in the National Brotherhood of Skiing today? The NBS doesn't like to give out a number, and I don't really know what the number is. We're down to about 60 ski clubs. Still it's, still a lot of, ski it's a lot clubs. of clubs. It's a lot of clubs. 
but actually getting the membership numbers from each one of these clubs is sometimes difficult. For example, you know, most clubs charge dues, but there are other clubs like Four Seasons West who has never charged dues. So how many people do we have? I don't know. We send out 2,000 constant contact emails a month. But what's our membership? I don't know. <laughs> That's okay. You got 60 seat clubs, right. about 2,000, and a bunch of people have gotten married. Yeah, a whole lot of people have gotten married. And, and some travel trips, too, as far as New Zealand. We've been to Austria. We've, um, four seasons has skied Europe all over the place. Hmm. The NBS did a summit, I believe it was in Austria. Four Seasons has skied Australia. Yeah, we went to Japan a year ago. Can you tell me some success stories that have come from it? People have gotten married, probably. Oh, there are tons of marriage stories. My older son and his wife current wife were both on the Four Seasons youth race team when they were kids. And they went off to college. She got married, got divorced. And uh, they suddenly got back together in Steamboat, Colorado. Oh, that gave me goosebumps. That's a good story. And uh, they got married two years later. And now I have a two-year-old grandchild. So... Now I have four new grandchildren. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, it's wonderful. So there's all sorts of stories like that that percolate through the group. As as an engineer, I would had a lot of traveling to do at one point. And I would go into airports and run into people from the summit. Mm. And I'm saying, what are you doing here? And they sort of slipped down and said, well, I'm visiting such and such. (laughs) (laughs) Who they met at the summit. (laughs) That they met at the summit. You should just start a matchmaking service, Ben. Sounds Uh, like... Nope. (laughs) Matchmaking, friendships... And skilled athletes aren't the only things that have come out of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. Ben and his co-founder, Art Clay, are being inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame this March. So you guys were recently elected into the Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. Yes. So what does that mean and where were you when you got the news? And congratulations, by the way. Thank you. I got the news, or we got the news in late August of this event. The story that goes along with this is that four years ago, one of the former presidents of the NBS by the name of Joe Long insisted that Art and I apply for admission to the Ski Hall of Fame along with the National Brotherhood of Skiers. So he convinced us to apply, and Art and I applied as individuals, and the NBS applied. Well, the result of that was that the NBS was denied because they don't take organizations. Art and I were advised to apply as a pair. And so in year... 
whatever, two years ago was, we applied as a couple <laughs> and didn't make it. As far as Ben was concerned, that was the end of it. But last year in Steamboat, Billy Kidd offered to assist us in our applications. This is Billy Kidd, the Olympic skier. And using Billy as an advisor, we applied again. And he wrote a supporting letter to that effect. So his support, <clears throat> plus this film that REI generated, The Brotherhood of Skiing, I think the combination is what got us selected this time. I'm thrilled by it. I'm absolutely thrilled by it. I am more thrilled by the fact that the National Brotherhood of Skiers is now a voting member of the Ski Hall of Fame. So all of a sudden, the NBS has a seat at the table. What's even more interesting is, if you look at the people who have been inducted into the ski hall, it's individual athletes, the ski companies, the ski patrol. It's people who service the general skiing population. But the NBS is the first organization who represents the general skiing population. I don't know if people recognize that. Ben recognizes that. And that's a thrill. That's huge. When you've brought so many people who wouldn't have traditionally maybe gone to the mountain to the mountain. Yeah. So that's awesome. Congratulations. Just just doing that was fantastic. Well, I didn't realize that you needed to raise money to be inducted though. So can you explain what can we do to help? Oh. You can do a lot to help. All right, talk as to us. As part of this, um, as part of this podcast, well, let's talk about the issue first of all. We were elected, and Art and I were uh, have been welcomed dramatically into the organization, and no one ever said to us, as individuals or as a couple, uh, anything about money. However, a month after we were elected, it became sort of obvious that, uh-oh, the ski hall, the induction is a fundraising event. And so the ski hall, appropriately so, but unbeknownst to us, approached the NBS and said, hey, we sure would like you guys to produce $10,000 for this thing. Uh, and so that was the challenge that was offered to us. So anybody out there, if you said, if we could say, gee, we'd like to set up a GoFundMe page, um, at the end of this broadcast, there will be a link to a page that you can go to to kick in 10, 20 bucks, whatever you think might be worthy of the National Brotherhood of Skiers 
co-founders being inducted into the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame. In addition to helping support their induction into the Hall of Fame, I wanted to know what else can we do to support these men in their mission to get more people of color participating in winter sports and involved in the National Brotherhood of Skiers. What's your advice to get more people, especially people of color, into skiing today? That would be, you see, skiing is not a sport where you can roll out a basketball and, and five or six guys can play or or baseball where, or soccer where, ten, where there are 10 people on each team. You're out there by yourself. And the more people who know how to ski, who will spend a little time with those who can't ski, that's what we need to do a lot more of. You know, rather than talk about how great a skier I am, I'd rather donate my time now to teaching younger kids to ski. You're a good egg. Is there anything else our listeners should know about the National Brotherhood of Skiing and how we can support the awesome work you're doing? How do people join, for one? Because I'm sure we have a lot of listeners who are interested in this. Yes. Well, you can go on to nbs.org. And the NBS ski clubs are broken up into regions, Eastern, Midwest, Rocky, and Western. Find a ski club. Go to their website and find out how you join. It's in the in the age of social media, it's not very complex to find a way to get there. That's awesome. Where are you guys going next? The uh, next summit is February 29th through March 7th in Sun Valley, right Idaho. Up. We will totally occupy the mountain. We can guarantee you that you will have a marvelous experience. Well, you guys see ski Bald Mountain or Dollar? Both. Bald is the big mountain. Bald is terrifying. Bald is terrifying? Oh, I just took my snowboard up there. We saw Clint Eastwood in the in the lobby hanging out, and then that mountain was like straight up down from the side I Nah that's a It was pretty fun though. That's a medium class mountain. Oh well I'm a baby then. (laughs) I've I've only done like mammoth. Oh. So mammoth is perfectly groomed now. Sun Valley is a little bit more challenging. And then dollar is pretty fun. Dollar is the learning for mountain. little kids, yeah, right? <laughs> and people Precisely. like me snowboarding out of bounds. <laughs> Precisely. Any advice to people who have a wild idea like this? I mean, your idea was just kind of a wild idea. Let's get some skiers together and go to the mountain. But to pull it off took some work. Any advice to other people who have a wild idea and want to make it happen? Sure. If you have a wild idea and want to make it happen, Ben would suggest that you first find a partner to assist you in this wild idea. And then the two of you, or maybe three of you, go off and do it. At least try to do it. You'll probably be successful, but you know the challenges, who knows what's going to happen? This was not planned at all. This was a wild idea to take some people skiing from Los Angeles that we found in a community center playing volleyball and all of a sudden life changed. Ben and Art are pretty amazing guys. 
They saw that accessibility was limited for black athletes in snow sports, and they decided to do something about it. They provided opportunities for people to learn a new sport, to forge connections, all while making a huge difference in the diversity of winter sports. Of course, I had to finish my conversation with Ben with a few wild questions. What's your favorite mountain to ski? At this point in my life, Mammoth Mountain. (laughs) Perfect five-hour drive. (laughs) Five-hour drive. I know the mountain. I can ski it with my eyes closed. What's your favorite run at Mammoth? Probably the top of 22. Oh, that's a good one. What mountain has the best food? What mountain has the best food that I can afford? (laughs) Um, I would say Vale. What mountain has the best party scene? I guess it's wherever the NBS is. (laughs) That is the perfect answer, right? (laughs) Because other than that, it's hit and miss. Yes. What's your favorite snack to take with you on the mountain? A hydro pack with water in it. Your favorite snack is water. With water. Gotta have water. You're hilarious. Okay, so if we were to make a movie on your life, what is the soundtrack music playing in the background? Atomic Dog. Atomic Dog? (laughs) Atomic Dog. That would be my soundtrack. What's your message to people who want to get into adventure, whether it's sailing or skiing, but they're a little intimidated by it? The advice is the normal advice I would give to anybody. Do it one step at a time, one day at a time. Don't jump into it with all four feet. Go and sample it. For example, if you're scared of roller coasters, go ride a wooden one first and see how it feels before you do one that takes you 360 degrees around the loop twice. And do it slowly and see how it feels. Apprehension will go away with time. Go take some lessons. And the lessons will be totally mild and calm. And you can decide after the first series of lessons how far you want to take it. I think that's good advice in a lot of sport. Take a lesson. Mm-hmm. And I think skiing now does a really good job of offering lessons oh, at almost tremendous. every mountain. I would never take anybody skiing without putting them into a lesson. Snowboarding or skiing. Agree. Well, I teach surfing, Ben, and I just throw this out to you. But Are you a professional instructor? I'm a professional instructor, not Son a professional surfer. Okay. So if you would ever like to come surfing, I'd be happy to take you and your wife out in La Jolla, San Diego. There you go, sweetie. We can go surfing. <laughs> so you think about it. It's a little cold right now, but it's okay. You're a skier, so you can handle it. We've got wetsuits. You're a diver. You'd be fine. <laughs> I think a lot of people, I mean, myself included, feel like we have to throw ourselves into a new adventure or sport or hobby, but I like Ben's advice to go one step at a time. This man has quite a bit of life experience, so I trust Ben's wisdom. If you want to join the National Brotherhood of Skiers, head to nbs.org where you can find a registered ski club in your area to join. They're actually in the middle of their 2020 summit right now in Sun Valley, Idaho. So to any National Brotherhood of Skier members who are listening, I hope you're having a blast. If you want to donate to Ben and Art's Hall of Fame induction fundraiser, 
You can see the show notes at whatever podcast player you're listening on or go to rei.com slash wild ideas worth living. Let's help these guys meet their goal. Thank you so much to Ben Finley and your wife for hosting me in your home and for telling me such great stories. Thank you also to Art Clay for chatting with me on the phone and to both of you for doing what you do. Join us week after next as we talk to musician Mike Posner about his walk across America, his latest mountaineering adventures, and so much more. Wild Ideas Worth Living is part of the REI Podcast Network. It's hosted by me, Shelby Stanger, written and edited by Annie Fassler, and produced by Chelsea Davis. As always, we appreciate when you subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you listen. And remember, some of the best adventures happen when you follow your wildest ideas. Mm -hmm.